guys. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Drew. Welcome to Salt City. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you remember, as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark, there's been this recurrent theme starting in about chapter 3 where Jesus begins to predict his death on the cross. And today, what we're coming to is really the climax of the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 15. These verses will be on the screens as well. We're going to read a portion of chapter 15, verses 21 through 41, which really give us the essence of the story of the crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders Hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this is the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, if you were to ask me the question, what is Salt City Church all about? I would say that Salt City Church is all about the cross. We love the cross, which is sort of a strange thing to say, and maybe your church background would actually push you in a little bit different direction. For example, the church that I grew up in, I would say the main theme of the preaching week in and week out and of the conversation that people had in the congregation was, love your neighbor as yourself. It was more focused on the actions of people than it was on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I remember one time hanging out with a woman from the church that I grew up in. She was in her 80s at the time. And we were talking about 
specifically the preaching ministry of the church. And at one point in our conversation, she sort of got fire in her eyes. Don't you love feisty older people? She got fire in her eyes. She said, if I could change one thing about the preaching at this church, I wished they preached about the blood. Which might sound like a strange thing to you. Why would the main message that we preach be about the blood? Why would the climax of the story of the gospel of Mark be about the main character being crucified in such a brutal way? The reason, turns out, is that the message of Christianity is the message of the cross. The cross is the main thing. The cross is where we look to find our freedom and our salvation. And so what we're going to look at this morning are three different aspects of this message of the cross. We're going to see that the cross is foolishness to the proud. The cross is our only way to God. And the cross is delightful to the humble. And I hope as we look through these different angles on the cross that we'll gain new perspective on what Jesus has done for us there. First of all, the cross is foolishness to the proud. If you remember Mark 15, 27 through 32 said this, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe they, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, what you notice about this is this is sort of the climax of the people who are in power and their view of who Jesus was. For the most part, throughout the Gospel of Mark, it is the poor, those who are obviously outwardly sinful, those who are broken in need of healing, who are accepting of Jesus and what he does, and it is the rich and the powerful and the proud who are rejecting what Jesus does. This is awful, but it's also insanely inhumane. Because at this moment, Jesus is on the cross. They're walking by him and mocking him as he is on the cross. They see the climax of the story of God. And they mock. And the primary thing that they have to say about what Jesus is doing on the cross is, you should come down. You've been claiming to be the king of Israel. You've been claiming to be the Messiah. You've been claiming to be the savior. We saw you save other people. You raised Lazarus from death. You healed sick people. You forgave other people of their sins. If you can do that, then if you wanted to, you could come right down. And in fact, they put him to the test. They say, if you came down right now off the cross, 
we would believe in you. They wanted a king who was made in their own image. Here's what I mean by that. These are the chief priests. These are the scribes. In other words, these are the high priests. These are the most influential, wealthy, powerful, and outwardly moral religious leaders in the society. They were looked up to. And what Jesus criticizes them for over and over again is they used their own power to save themselves. They used their own power to look good for other people so that other people worshiped them. This is the primary way that we interact with each other, isn't it? We try to use our position and our power and our success to make others look up to us so that we can have security and safety. We're all on sort of this self-salvation mission. And so when the religious leaders look at Jesus hanging on the cross and they see that he's saved others, but in his hour of greatest need, he's not saving himself, they think, then you must not really be a king. Because what kings do is they manipulate situations like this to their own advantage. There's no way you would stay on the cross if you're a king. Because the purpose of power is to save yourself. I saw a good example of this as I watched a documentary this week about Henry Ford. So, There's a lot of names that are sort of synonymous with America. And I would say Henry Ford is one of the names that's synonymous with America. And so he's sort of this rags to riches story. He was a farm kid. And then he was able to design the Model T and mass produce it so that everyone in America could have a car. And what was interesting is Henry Ford throughout his life continued to portray himself as one of the people. And so he actually made these sort of propaganda-ish videos and sort of stuff of him like chopping wood and working on a farm and doing all these very ordinary American things because he wanted it to appear that he was one of the people. But what's interesting is it was all a game. His entire life, was focused on himself and accruing as much power for himself as possible. And this really came to a head. He had a son named Etzel, and the Model T had kind of run its course. And so his son Etzel was a big part of designing the car that followed the Model T called the Model A. And the Model A was super successful. And Henry Ford opposed the Model A all the way until it went to production. And then it was massively successful. And instead of giving his son the credit he deserved for what he had done, Henry Ford very publicly took credit for the Model A. He used his power, he used his position, he used his authority, he used his wealth to justify himself, to make himself look good. This is the natural condition of every human being. 
So I think what's happening as Jesus is hanging on the cross and as the religious leaders look at him, they want him to get down because he's making them look terrible. He's been making them look terrible. He's been calling them out for their pride and their hoarding of their stuff and their self-justification. And they're mocking him because he's exposed their brokenness. And so what we have as we start this message is we have this choice. We can either begin by mocking Jesus. Saying, you know what? It's ridiculous that you stayed on the cross. If I had as much power as you, I would have gotten down. Or our brokenness can begin to be exposed. Because what Jesus exposes as he's on a cross is that there's a different way to live. There's a way to live that is completely foreign to all of us. And that is a way of love. Where we don't use our possessions and our power to our own advantage, but instead we live lives of daily dying to ourselves and our own agenda in order to care for other people. You see, it's impossible to love someone else if you do not die to yourself. And the cross is the ultimate example of that. We know that the reason Jesus stayed on the cross is not because he was stuck there, but it's because he loves us. It's because he loves us. And that's because the cross is our only way to God. Point number two, the cross is our only way to God. There's this invisible transaction that's taking place on the cross where Jesus is diverting the wrath of God. The guilt for our sin is placed on him. And we see that very clearly in the next few verses. Starting with verse 33, going to verse 38 of Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now throughout scripture, light signifies the presence of God, the beauty of God, the creative power of God. We immediately see in this passage that when Jesus was on the cross, the lights went out. It was completely dark. It was like there was a giant bruise in the sky, signifying that the loving presence of God had been pulled away from Jesus. You remember, God the Father said to Jesus' son when he was getting baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At this moment, he has pulled his loving presence away from Jesus 
And for the first time in Jesus' existence, remember, the Father and the Son have existed in relationship for eternity. And for the first time, God's loving presence is pulled away from Jesus. And he experiences God's wrath. In the normal course of their conversation, God the Son, Jesus, calls God the Father, his Father. When he prays to him, he says, Father. We know that even from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And in this moment, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is such an interesting question, isn't it? Does Jesus not know the answer to the question? Does he not know that he's bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders? I don't think so. Think his why is not a true question. His why is a cry of longing for his relationship with his father to be restored. It's not that he doesn't know the answer. It's that he is in such immense agony, not because of the nails in his hands mainly, not because of the nail through his feet, not because he'd just gotten 40 lashes on his back, not because his friends have betrayed him. What was most immensely painful for Jesus on the cross is that he was forsaken by God. The cross was a hell on earth. Jesus was bearing our sins on his body. And God turned his face away from him and poured out his fierce anger on Jesus. And we all know that the most painful relational losses that we experience in this life are the relationships that were most meaningful to us and lasted longest. You know, one moment I'll never forget in my life is walking into the hospital room where my grandmother was dying. She had pancreatic cancer. She had a large tumor on her stomach. And I had talked to both her and my grandpa on the phone many times. But there was something about walking into that room. My grandparents had been married for almost 60 years. And I'll never forget my grandpa's sitting in the chair next to my grandma. And I remember walking into that room in my early 20s and just falling down on my knees. And part of the reason I began to cry was because I was going to miss my grandma. But the main reason I began to cry is thinking about my grandparents being separated from each other. Thinking about the loss that my grandpa would experience. It would be one thing to lose your wife after a couple months of marriage or after a few years, but after 60 years, your house, your entire life would almost be haunted by the loss of their presence. Now imagine Jesus on the cross 
Not 60 years, 60 million years. Eternity of relationship. Of God saying, you're my son. With you, I'm well pleased. They created the universe together. They created humanity together. They walked in perfect fellowship, perfect joy, perfect relationship. And in a moment, cut off. And you imagine the pain. And Jesus hung on the cross and he experienced this invisible suffering. The suffering that the eyes can't see for you and for me. The measure of God's love is that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So what should our response be to this astounding, baffling news? We could choose to mock as the religious leaders did. To look at it with scorn and say, it doesn't really make any sense that someone with so much power would not come down off the cross. Or we could respond like the centurion did. And we see in his life story that the cross is delightful to the humble. It's foolishness to the proud, but it's delightful to the humble. Mark 15, 39 encapsulates how he responded to Jesus on the cross. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now this is an incredibly surprising moment in the gospel of Mark. The people who you would have thought would have responded rightly to Jesus on the cross would have been the religious leaders. They were the insiders. They were the conservatives. They were ones who were supposed to be awaiting the Messiah. They were God's people, his chosen race. And here we have a Roman soldier the occupying force. This is one of the baddest of the bad guys. He might have driven one of the nails through the hand of Jesus. He was there, and he was there to crucify Jesus. Imagine him lifting the cross up, placing it in the ground, And you can almost see him, right? He's got his Roman garb on. We all kind of know what a Roman soldier's outfit looks like. And at first, maybe he's mocking, looking up at Jesus. But then his tone begins to change. He hears Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden, this Roman soldier probably hates Jews, hates the people of God. 
He's just trying to keep order. Pilate's given him these instructions. He's just trying to keep things under control. He stands at the base of the cross. He hears Jesus cry out these words, and he has an aha moment. The aha moment comes because of how Jesus breathed his last. In this moment, he sees the relational connection between God the Father and his Son. You see, what's happening on the cross in this moment is that even though God the Father is killing God the Son, he's pouring his wrath out on him, Jesus still calls him my God. Isn't that amazing? Even as God and the Father turns his back on him, Jesus cannot help but trust him. You're killing me. I trust you. And the centurion's conclusion at that moment is not, why doesn't he just get down off the cross? His conclusion is, this must be the son of God. It's not possible that an ordinary human being could trust God this way. Only the son of God could hang on a cross and not move, even though he has all the power in the universe. Only the son of God could do that. Only the son of God could have that type of intimacy with God. Only the son of God could submit to God's will that thoroughly. Now that's almost impossible to illustrate, but let me try. Okay, so my son, Luke, got an assignment on Friday night. We had Ari and Hazel, our twin girls, entire preschool class over to our backyard. Bad idea. We have a trampoline, even worse idea. <laughs> and so Melissa and I were discussing how many kids on the trampoline at a time. We were saying, well, you know, you really don't want to be that house where a kid breaks his arm or bashes his head into another kid or whatever. Do we increase our insurance policy? You know, having those type of conversations. And so we knew that Melissa was going to be sort of getting some food ready and organizing the tables and different things like that. And I was going to be manning the grill. So we needed to put somebody in charge of the trampoline. And so who better than our six-year-old son, <laughs> Luke. Right? But this is a big deal, right? Because here's the thing. We've got a sprinkler set up on one side of the yard. We have chocolate cupcakes and cookies lining this table. There's a sandbox. There's a play set. And there's going to be 30 other kids there. To tell a six-year-old, your job is to watch the trampoline and make sure that no more than three kids are on the trampoline at a time. It's torture. It's horrible, right? So here's what Luke did. I, I, I kind of stood and watched him, right? So I'm cooking the burgers and watching him. And for a while, there's three kids up there, and then another kid would get up there, and he was faithfully just pulling them off, pulling them off, right? pulling them off. 
Here's the thing. My son Luke, he's adopted from the Congo, so it's not immediately obvious that he's my son. But you would have figured out pretty quickly that there is no way that any six-year-old in his right mind would do what he was doing at a party unless he was given that assignment by his dad. And he trusted his dad, and his dad was going to give him five bucks (laughs) at the end of the night. Right? You would know that that was my son because he was doing something ridiculous and trusting me along the way. See, the centurion knew that Jesus was the son of God because there is no way that anyone would hang on a cross for the sins of the world unless he had such depth of trust and unless he had an eternity of relationship in the past, an eternal basis to trust him, there's no way that he would have hung there. And he looked up at Jesus and he heard him breathe his last. He heard him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he knew that that was the son of God. And then that fact, without the Roman centurion knowing it, was confirmed. The curtain in the temple was ripped in two. People for thousands of years had been trying to get into the presence of God. And if you remember right, in the temple, there were all these different courts. So you had the court of the Gentiles. Inside of that, you had the court of women. Inside of that, you had the court of the Jews. Then you had the court of the priests. And at the very center, separated by a massive curtain, you had the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed in there one time a year, And while Jesus is on the cross and his body is being torn in two, that curtain is torn in two. Which says to the whole world, you can come into the presence of God. Not by your works, not by anything that you could do, but only by what the Son of God has done on the cross. You see, the problem with the main message at a church being love your neighbor as yourself is you can never love your neighbor enough to make yourself right with God. The only way to be right with God is through the cross. Our access to God is fully the work of Jesus. We can't clean our lives up. We can never do enough. We can never do anything that would disqualify us from God's presence. Because the only way into the presence of God is through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Here's my question for you. Do you look at the cross and do you see foolishness? Or do you look at the cross and wonder? Is your heart filled with delight? The Apostle Paul puts the decision this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, let me ask this question again. I'm not asking you if at some point at church camp 27 years ago, you trusted in Jesus. I'm asking you, is the cross at the center of your affections? Is the cross the delight of your heart? Because the message of the cross is the essence of Christianity. If you don't see your need for the cross today, you might have never understood what this thing is all about. We must come to the cross each day with fresh eyes and see that what Jesus did there is the most important event in all of human history and that he died personally for us. And would that melt our hearts into following Jesus with all of our being? Let's pray. Jesus, we are freshly amazed by what you did on the cross. Some of us maybe came in this morning and thought that the cross was foolishness or didn't understand it. We all need you to open our eyes so that we can see what that centurion saw, that we can see that you truly are the Son of God and that you have made a way into the Father's presence where there was no way. We say thank you. God, we're tired of striving we're tired of trying, and we so often forget about what you've done for us. Would you bring us back to the simplicity of coming into the presence of God, not by our own works, but through Jesus alone? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.